On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Rick Zamperin this week, we're going to be talking about some good news off the top. All the school buses that need to drive kids to school apparently all have drivers this year. That is new in the last number of years. That is good news. Not so good. Supercrawl is facing a funding crunch right now. We'll be talking to Tim Potisic about that. Also going to be chatting about Telling Tales. That's a reading festival coming up in the city. If you've been trying to get tickets to go see Taylor Swift and can't and you're upset, we'll talk about that, whether there's a better system. Taxes. How much of your income is going to taxes? You are going to be shocked, I think. And based on that, can the government bring back its message about supporting the middle class when the middle class seems to be getting hammered by everything these days? We'll get into all that right here. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. When we talk about this every year around this time, it has not always been good news. However, it appears right now, as I said before the break, touch wood, touch veneer, uh, and cross your fingers, all the school buses that are needed to get kids to school this year appear to have drivers right now. Let me bring in Don Danko, who is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Uh, Don, thanks for doing this this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a bit of a nice break, I'm sure, for you to be able to have this discussion in mid-August and not for it to be desperation time and not to be bad news. This sounds like it's good news. It actually, it's very welcome, very positive news, and the timing is wonderful, too, because families are just finding out this week um, information about their child's route, uh, whether their child is eligible, if they're new to our system. So all around, really positive news. We know that so many families rely on transportation to and from school, and we've had a, such a, a long period of disruption with the chronic driver shortage over the past few years, and we know that for every family where a bus is late um, or, or there's a disruption in the route, that causes significant um, problems for that family. All right, you mentioned chronic, and it has been over the last number of years. What is different this year? Why is it working now? Well, we've been working with our operators for the past year, well, really the past number of years, but this past year they've been working very, very hard to recruit and train. So I, I would say they've had far more training opportunities for new drivers, um, but it just seems that maybe we're coming out of that driver shortage that we've experienced across Ontario. Um, you know, maybe the industry is just shifting a bit, uh, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. One thing I will note is that... Um, there have been years where we've projected to have all routes covered. We haven't been in this good shape, a good, good a shape, in in the last number of years, as really as long as I can remember. But um, we do know that there's some attrition of drivers in September often, and so we may have some retirements or people may choose to leave the the field, and so we we are cautiously optimistic, and our operators are are making sure that they have a robust pool of spares, so that uh, if they have to fill a spot that someone leaves, they've got that that. Uh, driver in place already. I understand that you are the chair of the school board, not the head of the busing services division, but why is it so difficult? Why has it been so difficult to find drivers over the last number of years? Well, bus driving is a, it's a unique job. It's a split shift. So people work morning and afternoon. You know, the pay is around nineteen fifty an hour. That's just sort of an average that, that I think I saw from last year. So it, it's not going to work for everyone. Um, we also had some challenges where HSR, for example, which has a full shift and pays a higher rate, they had a shortage for a time. And as drivers would train to drive school buses, HSR would then, you know, recruit them over to it, to that job. So I think it's a whole variety of factors, but um, the job itself 
you know, you have to, to be someone who's able to do that kind of a split shift. Who, who, who does that? I mean, is it, it's been a few years since my kids were on a school bus. Is it l- heavily on retirees who are looking for something to do when they're done their work or is it younger people who, who fills the spots? In my experience, um, and, and I can't really speak to, you know, our drivers for this year, but um, it, it often has been people who have, you know, retired and, and have time and would like to continue working but aren't looking for full-time work. Um, but, yeah, I, I think we're just reaching out and making sure we're getting that recruitment message out to really as many people as possible. Um, but uh, I think the demographics are shifting, and we're seeing a lot of different people take on the role. Is this something that you have to add to each year? Are there more routes that are added each year or are there less routes or is it always the same every year? Is this like, does the problem grow because you keep expanding with new schools or new areas that you're tapping into for students? So we have around 460 vehicles and we serve about 28,000 students. So the number of routes really is dependent on the number of students that live in the transportation eligible areas. So each school board, um, because of course we work with our Catholic, um, the Catholic school board, with our transportation services, we have our different policies around walk distances. So it's really just a function of which students live far enough away from the school and require a bus route. We've had increasing enrollment over the past couple of years, which is good news for our school board, but that does sometimes mean that we need to add a few additional routes. One thing we did recently, um, parents will remember this, a couple of years ago, is we did a bell time study. And that's where we went and coordinated bell times, made some significant shifts, um, and people had to really adjust to that. But it was so that we could reduce the number of overall routes that were required. And and that is one of the reasons that we're in a better position this year. It is, uh, as I say, it is good news. Hopefully the good news continues. I know there's, you know, talk of work, labor issues and things like that, but at least the first thing is taken care of. <laughs> first things first, at least we can probably hopefully get every kid to school. That is a, that's a positive step. Uh, Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Thanks for this. Thank you, Scott. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know what? It's uh, year after year after year at this time, we've been hearing the opposite. So we will take it when the good news comes. We will absolutely take it when the good news comes. There's no complaining about something positive. That is, uh, that's good. And as I say, hopefully all the school stuff this year continues on because there is talk of labor issues and things like that. Hopefully that's, um, hopefully we can only have happy news with school this year. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A few weeks from now, we're going to be, well, many people from the city anyway, and from outside the city are going to be heading downtown as they do every year to take part in Super Crawl, which is really one of the great events in this city every year. And one of the events that really brings so many people into the downtown. This year, though, uh, Super Crawl is facing a bit of a budget crunch, it seems, that uh, funding is not available. Not as much funding is available. There may be a reason for this, but it doesn't lessen the burden that falls onto Tim Potasek and the other organizers of this. Uh, Tim joins me now. Tim, how are you this morning? Hey, how are you? I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for coming on this morning. Absolutely. So uh, explain what's happened here. Super Crawl um, has been around, as, as we know, for years now. It's well established. But do you still have to put in applications year after year after year for funding? And do you still have to explain or defend or sell the festival to those who would give you money? 
Yeah, absolutely. Like <clears throat> we're not special in that regard. Like you know, most provinces in Ontario and across the country are applying for provincial, federal, municipal money. Uh, so it is a yearly it's a yearly thing, and we apply and we we hit high benchmarks as far as our writing processes. We're always in the top, you know, the A the A group of the grant writing uh, applications. We always have right on a high level, and we uh, we have a great event that uh, has massive economic impact. So you know, we uh, we expect to be funded when we do those applications mm. at a reasonable level. When you say though, Tim, that you're not special, and I know what you were getting at, but I'm going to take some issue with that, only because whether people think it's the greatest festival or not the greatest festival, that's not what we're talking about right now. You do bring in more people than almost any other thing in this city. That, that's got to count for something. Uh, yeah, you would hope. I mean, our economic impact is very, very high, and we've worked really hard to build an event in the downtown area that does you know, provide a massive economic impact and a big boost to all the businesses downtown and and vendors and people that are participating in the in the event. So, so important. So, why then the challenge to get more grant money? I read somewhere that one of the problems here is that there are just too darn many festivals all looking for money right now. Is that the issue? That's one of the issues. That's what I'm being told. I don't know where all the new festivals are coming from. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have started a new festival post COVID. But <laughs> um, I feel like there are there are some. I'm not a hundred percent sure. If that is, um, you know, 100% true, but they're trying to, they are definitely saying they're trying to spread the same amount of money or less money out to more people. But the bigger problem, Scott, honestly, is the fact that, you know, these grants used to be things that we would write in the fall and we would have answers uh, by, you know, the beginning of the year of the festival, as would every other festival. But this year, the provincial government, you know, they really dropped the ball. We didn't. The the entire province didn't start writing those applications until April, and notification didn't come in until a couple weeks ago. Some events had already happened, and, you know, we're counting on that money. Burlington Sound of Music, you know, they got cut by 50%. We got cut by 50%. Burlington had already run. Uh, Festival of Friends got cut 100%. They got nothing from the province this year. Also a very important event for the city. So, you know, it's just, it's sort of the timing. I've written letters uh, to the MP and the MPPs and for uh, federal and provincial <clears throat> levels and, you know, sort of illuminated the fact that, you know, the deadlines are now, they're slow, they're being pushed, and they're too late. And it's impossible to plan. How do you plan? You know, we take our previous year's budget and we always budget on a lower level, you know, just to be safe. But now we can't budget low enough. We just received a 70% cut in our federal funding. Why? Do they give any, ex- do they give any explanation for why, no. why you or Sound of Music or anyone else, why the cut? Just uh, oversubscribed, you know. Um, but like, you know, I guess they're spreading it out to new events, which, you know, I can understand on some level, but then you have these pivotal events like Burlington Sound of Music is a pivotal event for that city. Supercrawl is a pivotal event for Hamilton. Um, and to take us and, you know, cut cut by like 50%. I can understand a 10% cut. I can understand things that, you know, within reason, because they have to understand that we're budgeting based on the fact that we've received these funds from the province and the federal government for over 10 years. So all of a sudden now, you know, the cuts are 50%, 60%, 70%. You know, it's pretty unacceptable. Um, We're going to get through it. Our festival, nothing is going to look like anything has changed. We're plowing ahead. 
we're just planning for the future so that we can like re, you know recoup some of these costs over 2024 and 2025. So how do you do that then? If you're going to go ahead and no one's going to notice a difference, will prices be higher or will I mean how how do you make it work? Uh, no, nothing's changing. No no change to the public, no change from performances. Everybody's getting paid. Um, you know the the issue with us is that you know our our organization takes the hit as far as like being able to you know, I, you know Sonic Onion runs the festival and I'm paying all the wages for everybody, but I won't be recouping all the wages. So it'll just be dollars coming out of you know my my pocket for covering all the wages for everybody who's been you know putting the festival together for the year and on site. But uh, these are just things that you have to deal with. It's just like a, it's a business problem you've got to deal with. And I'm lobbying really hard. I'm doing interviews, you know, with yourself and others and writing letters and telling the government, you know, basically I'm not complaining. I'm telling them what they're doing wrong and how to fix it. This is probably an unfair question to ask you because I already, I think I know what you're going to say here, but should... Since there is apparently limited money for festivals and things like this, should the government be pouring it into established festivals that already have shown they can work? Or should it be spread out to a bunch of new ones who are trying to get a foothold and get started? Because if, 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 if the pie can only be cut so many ways, what is the right answer? It's a, it's a tough call. I mean, you know, um, obviously, you know, there's always... I started at one point, Supercrawl was, you know, just... Uh, a small, small event at one point. Um, so, you know, we needed those funds, but we weren't getting giant funds. You know, we were getting really small amounts of money to establish ourselves and, and build ourselves. And, uh, yeah, there's something to be said for large free festivals that are established in providing massive economic impact to their communities, and they should they should be funded. That is Tim Potasek. He is the co-owner of Sonic Onion Records. He is also the guy behind Supercrawl, uh, which is coming up. The dates, again, middle of September. What are the dates exactly, Tim? September 8th, 9th, and 10th, there right around the corner. Right around the corner. There you go. I uh, appreciate you jumping on and doing this today. Thanks. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If it seems to you like you are paying an awful lot in taxes especially relative to other expenses. If it seems that an awful lot of your money is going before you even touch it, you are not wrong. A new study has found that the average Canadian family paid more on taxes than it did on housing, food, and clothing combined last year in 2022. More in taxes than on the essentials of life. Hmm. Jake Fuss is a senior economist with the Fraser Institute that did this. He was the, the author behind this. He joins us now. Jake, how are you this morning? Good morning. I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I Listen, I appreciate you doing this. Um, I, I'm scrolling through this and I want to get to a bunch of these things, but the, the number that jumped out at me, I just, I couldn't believe when I saw this number, the total tax bill for the average Canadian family since 1961 has increased by 2,778%. That's that. That is a. It's an almost unbelievable number. Yeah, we've seen a, a massive increase in taxes over time. Um, you know, it is the single largest expense for households now. Um, you know, even though we have seen this uh, massive increase in housing prices and food costs as well, um, those have been dwarfed by the increase in taxes over time. Um, and we're finding that the average Canadian family now pays roughly forty-five percent of their annual income in taxes. 
Um, and this has really been the case since the, the 1980s, too, where we've seen taxes um, dwarfing uh, the increases in basic necessities. Um, uh, so this is obviously a very large expense for uh, Canadian households right now. And yet we always hear governments of all level, of all stripes, all say, hey, look, we're doing something to make your life more affordable. And the answer seems to be right here. We're paying more in taxes than anywhere else. Should this not be a sign to governments that maybe if our money is going here, they could make life more affordable by making some cuts and sending some of this money back to us? Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the concerns is that, you know, when we're talking about affordability, because that's obviously top of mind for a lot of Canadians, I think the definition a lot of times isn't very broad. You know, they just focus mainly on housing and food. Um, you know, people are obviously struggling to pay their bills and the prices of basic necessities have been rising. Um, but the growth in the tax bill for families has really flown under the radar. Um, you know, so with about 45% of the average family's income going to taxes, you can think of this as basically the price we pay for government. Um, you know, it certainly makes sense for the rising cost of living to be a source of anxiety, but it's also important to recognize that the tax bill for family consumes a larger portion of their income than basic necessities. Uh, so I think, you know, we need to expand our scope of what's included in the definition of affordability here. Mm. Well, and, and look, I, I'm, I certainly don't have an objection to paying taxes. I think most people understand, as you've alluded to, that the, this is the cost of doing business. This is the cost of being a citizen. It's a cost of living in the country. But being happy and or at least willing to pay taxes, I don't think means being willing to pay any amount of taxes. It seems when you see these numbers, it seems government is taking advantage of the fact that we have no choice. That's my take from it. Yeah, well, I mean, mean, taxes do pay for important public services, and it's important to remember that. But we also need to consider where the money is going and how effective that spending is. So if we look at healthcare spending, for instance, that's grown considerably in recent years. But, you know, our wait times in healthcare are quite long, especially in comparison to other universal healthcare countries. So I think, you know, each Canadian should evaluate the quality of services they're receiving and weigh it against how much they're paying in taxes as well. So ultimately, Canadians can decide for themselves if they're getting value for their tax dollars and decide if 45% is too much, too little, just right, um, and ultimately evaluate, you know, what they're getting in return for that uh, amount of money that they're spending on taxes every year. But you point out in your report, and I think this is really important, taxes have grown much more rapidly than any other single expenditure for the average Canadian family. Again, I don't think people balk at the idea of paying taxes if they were growing at a rate equal or similar to all the other things that are going up in life. They're going up way faster. Yeah, and that's one of the main concerns. I mean, we did some some polling earlier this year of Canadians too, and, and we found that the vast majority of Canadians in every province um, said that they believe that the tax bill for the average family is too high right now. Um, so when we polled Canadians, it was about 74% of Canadians saying that they thought that the tax bill for average families was too high. Um, so there's clearly, you know, an appetite among a lot of Canadians for some changes in the tax system. Um, and I think it's kind of long overdue to to have that discussion, because um, ultimately, even though we are seeing these increases in, in housing costs and in food costs as well, um, you know, f- how um, taxes has really exploded um, in terms of the, the costs of just even paying those um, tax bill for the average family. So that's certainly, you know, a growing concern, I think, for a lot of Canadians right now. Jake, just before we let you go, when you did your study, was it involving all levels of government or was this provincial and federal or just federal? Were municipal involved in this as well? 
Yeah, so it, this is looking at all three levels of government. Um, so this includes local taxes that you pay, you know, things like property taxes, um, and also includes provincial taxes, so the income taxes, sales taxes that you pay to your province, um, and also includes federal taxes too. So this includes all types of taxes in Canada. It's not just the personal income taxes that you pay um, for your wages and salaries. It's also, um, you know, a whole host of other things like carbon taxes, sales taxes, property taxes, and the list goes on. Mm. Well, people around here might want to brace themselves because we've already heard that in Hamilton, a number of councillors have said brace for at least a 10% tax increase next year. So whatever this figure was, Jake, that you came up with uh, around here anyway, we expect it will be higher next year, uh, which, you know, we all love that idea, don't we? Uh, Jake Foss, Senior Economist with the Fraser Institute. Thanks for doing this. Thanks very much for having me on. Oh man. Yeah. The, the, that idea of the 10% municipal increase, at least that, that is a sobering splash of cold water. You hear a study like this and go, oh, and guess what? We've got another 10% locally, at least coming. When does it end? That's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you did pay attention in elections past for the last while, and even not even just in elections since then, the favorite word, it seems, words, phrase for politicians is the middle class. We're here to help the middle class. We're all about the middle class. We want to bring the cost down for the middle class. The middle class, middle class, middle class. You could not have paid attention to politics for the last decade, at least, and not heard the phrase middle class a million times. And yet I think that it's probably reasonable to suggest that the middle class is feeling very strapped these days, very pinched these days. We were just talking about that survey that shows that people in Canada, including the middle class, are paying more in taxes than they are for all the essentials, housing, food, and clothing combined. So can the current government, the the conservatives can do whatever they want right now running because they're not in government. They can take shots at whatever and make arguments. But can the current liberal government return to its argument for the middle class with what's going on right now? Let's bring in Tim Powers. He's the chairman of Summit Strategies. He's managing director of Abacus Data. Tim, how are you this morning? I am good, Scott. How are you? I could not be better. Uh, This one, though, I got to think that for the liberals, this is a bit of a tricky one because eight years in, I don't know that the middle class is feeling entirely like things are all that much better economically, if no other reason. Yeah, look, um, I'm sitting in St. John's today talking to you. I'm out here at home for a couple of days, and this has been a bastion of liberal support, Newfoundland and Labrador, the whole Atlantic region, for that matter, in their darkest days in 2011 when they lost the election, went to third place. Um, they, They did very well out here. There are a lot of angry Atlantic Canadians who would be striving, as the liberals used to say, to to be in the middle class or striving to stay in the middle class right now, who are not happy uh, with this government for all manner of of different reasons. So there's almost a perfect storm of uh, attack on the government right now. Some of it is of their own doing. Some of it is related to global economic uh, challenges and climate. But uh, they are uh, they are struggling uh, to uh, to keep the support they had and and keep that message of uh, middle class strivers and uh, protectors front and center. Uh, Not to be too cynical here, Tim, but I think we all remember that back when this government, I don't know if it was the last election or the election before, after they were elected, 
appointed someone as minister for middle class. And at well, that prosperity. time, prosperity, yeah, prosperity for middle class, whatever it was, middle class prosperity. Okay. And at that time, that minister was asked to define the middle class and couldn't do it. Now, I don't know that the conservatives do it any better. Has anybody yep. yet who is running for office or in office been able to finally define what the middle class is? And if you and I, because we're of a similar age, we're trying to define it, it's probably different than what somebody else thinks it was, uh, thinks it's supposed to be today. No, nobody can properly define it. I, I, well, I'm sure, uh, let me correct myself, Scott. I'm sure there's an economist who could come up with a perfect model of what the middle class is. But I think the, you know, the, the political definition of it is, is somebody who's, well, oh, probably family income uh, in or around 100K who's going to do better, who can take their kids on vacation who can still afford to put them in sports programs, who can, uh, you know, it's not pressed to, 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 to so pressed that the paycheck is constantly strained. That's, you know, the, the, um, the emotional definition of it. Uh, and you're right, no party can, can define it, but what they can do, particularly the opposition, is, is get at the feelings of anxiety that people have. And they can point to, as they're doing here out east, and they have been doing in Ontario, pointing to clear, you know, government policies that are taking away from your striving, i.e., carbon pricing, or as the conservatives call it, carbon tax. Um, so when you go to the pump, um, conservatives want you to think about that as a liberal burden that's inhibiting you from doing that middle class journey that they once said you could uh, easily go on. There was a very famous American presidential campaign uh, that used the phrase, it's the economy stupid. Economy stupid. Yeah. Uh, that seems like it's a pretty resonant phrase even right now and north of the border, not just south of the border. That seems like it's a, if not a winning strategy, because we don't know yet who's going to win, but boy, that seems like it's finding some ground. Yeah, well, it, it, it is, because I, I think, you know, the summer is a time when everybody gets a feeling for how much things cost, because we're probably out and about more. We're looking at, uh, you know, taking vacations with our family. We're with our friends more. So the conversations are more acute about, geez, isn't it cost more to do this? Or, I, you know, I'm worried about going back to school now because the supplies are going to be this much more. So there's a lot of sharing that's happening at these times. So when somebody comes out and says, oh, you know, we, we hear you and we're going to do something about it, that, that resonates, except if you're the liberal government and you've been in power for eight years and people don't feel like it. I mean, the most fascinating thing for me right now, Scott, is uh, some of our most recent abacus polling shows that millennials, now millennials, as you know, were strong supporters of Justin Trudeau in 2015 uh, and even in 2019. They like the striving message. They like the opportunity message. They're going to the conservatives right now because I think they're liking what Pierre Polyev is saying about housing and having the opportunity to buy houses, not that Pierre Polyev can snap his fingers and make that happen. So from a real political perspective, if you know people in the millennials, the Gen Z category, who now are at a place in their life where they want to have more opportunity, they want to buy things, they want to own things, if they're not feeling their government's doing it for them, that's a major issue for the liberals. We got one minute left here. But can, is there something the liberals can do? Again, it's difficult when you've been the party in power because you can't point to something ethereal or practical. You have to point to, or, or theoretically, you have to point to something yeah. practical. Is there any way they can dig theirself, themselves out of this before an election comes along unless, if the economy doesn't dramatically change in favor of people? 
Well, I think they're going to go down their normal route of spending a lot of money to try and do it. I mean, for example, uh, uh, their cabinet retreating PEI. What do they say they're focusing on? Housing. They say they're going to supercharge housing. Housing's one of those collection connection issues for millennials. But I don't know about you, Scott, but if you've tried to get any tradespeople lately to build or fix anything, I don't know how quickly they're going to get the 5.8 million houses up they need to get up by 2030. I think they're going to try housing. I think they're going to try money there. We'll see if it works. That is Tim Powers. Always love having you on. Chairman of Summit Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. As I say, we do love having you on here, Tim. Thanks for doing this today. Take care, buddy. Bye. That is uh, that is going to be a challenge for sure. If you're the liberals, is uh, making it look like somehow the economy is not what s- seemingly a lot of people feel the economy is. That is that is tricky. A lot easier for a, an opposition to argue the economy when things aren't great than a government that has been in power and that has to argue with what it's done. It's, it's, it'll be interesting. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Kids are going to be back in school. Fall's going to be here. We're going to be back into our regular routine, unfortunately, for many people. Well, you know, summer. Love summer, but we're going to be getting back into it pretty soon. And when that gets going... We're also going to be having the return of Telling Tales. Telling Tales is a uh, is a fantastic festival that uh, that celebrates reading and literature. Uh, it's a great thing that we do around here. Heather Kanabi is the executive director. She is with Telling Tales. She joins us now. Heather, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am great. This is um, <laughs> this is a this is a great thing, especially because and uh, maybe I'm wrong on this one. Maybe I'm completely wrong on this one. But it seems harder <laughs> and harder to get kids to read now because there are so many other things that are easier to do and distractions and the you know reading. You have to put a little effort. It's it's. Am I wrong or does it seem like it's a harder thing to do now? think that's a fair assessment. I have a seven-year-old. I can say from experience, it feels a little hard sometimes. Yep. Yep. Because there was a day, and I, I don't mean, I don't want to age us, but I mean, it's not just us or me or anyone, but <laughs> but it, that was something kids, I mean, in the summertime or whenever you read, it's just, as I say, there's so many distractions now. So I, I think that that makes telling tales and this festival more important now than ever, because you are introdu- maybe introducing some kids to this. Absolutely. It's kind of funnily and excitingly located as a perfect kickoff for back to school, getting the kids to have those moments of inspiration around reading. But also, (laughs) it fits into the need to find something engaging and exciting for your kids as an activity, which I feel like, you know, maybe that's why it has been a bit trickier to get folks back into uh, reading the little ones. All right. So tell us what, te- I mean, there are some people who are going to be listening who have not heard of Telling Tales before. What What is Telling Tales? Uh, so Telling Tales was the brainchild of the amazing Susan Jasper. And it really came about with the desire to put kids first when it came to celebrating literature. And so this festival kind of connected uh, literature and also nature so uh, that it became this amazing opportunity uh, to create connections between authors and little ones in the context of nature. So here's a way to not have the kids be distracted and focused on the amazing um, books and author journeys. And so at this festival, this is not just that they're, they're not just selling books or not just having a sit around and read. You, you have authors coming in to, do they do readings or do they just talk about their books or what do they do? 
So they do a little bit of everything. We have over 40 authors that are coming into the festival from across Canada. So they're flying here to be with your littles and, uh, and teens. And they'll be doing uh, presentations. So they'll do some readings. Uh, we have different ways of engaging. So they're not just readings. Uh, there's workshops, writing workshops, crafting workshops uh, that are led by these authors um, with the addition of some amazing hosts that we bring. Um, and there's also other activities. So uh, everything's literary focused, but we do have other uh, celebrations of storytelling, including puppetry and more story time focused and musical focus. So we do have some of those musical storytellers joining us as well. How do you choose who comes? Because I, I have to believe that, again, going back to where we started, one of the things you're trying to do is to engage kids in this, which means that if you're going to do that, you've got to have people who can engage kids. So how do you find them and how do you, how do you choose who's going to be here? Mm -hmm. Well, we have a rich history, having been around for 15 years, um, and lots of uh, inside knowledge of some of the amazing authors that we have here in Canada. But we also have a great selection committee that has representatives from a lot of insightful areas. So uh, folks that work with kids in school programming, teachers, parents, uh, young folks themselves uh, on that committee. So uh you know folks that are teenagers so really the the people that are selecting these folks have a really great understanding of the diversity of needs and um and desires of our community if someone is interested in this where is it and when is it how, how does someone find out about all this Telling Tales is uh, at Royal Botanical Garden. So you can actually go on their website or our website. Our website is tellingtales.org and you can register because this event is free. So you get to go enjoy five stages of literary treasures at the Royal Botanical Gardens for free in Henry Park. Um, so hop onto tellingtales.org, register, and then you can walk your way into Henry Park and enjoy the day. I should ask you, when you were a really young kid getting into reading at the beginning, did you have a favorite book? I did. I had a favorite book. It's called My Very Last First Time. It's by a Canadian author. And in fact, I got to sit down with him in uh, a book reading uh, at my school in Scarborough, Ontario. And uh, that was a Groundwood uh, publication. And it was beautiful. It was about a little uh, Inuit girl who uh, went on this great exploration under the sea uh, under the ice, uh, for the, her, uh, very last first time. Wow. You see, and if you remember it, it obviously <laughs> worked. It was, uh, it did what it was supposed to do. Heather Canaby, executive right. director, uh, with telling tales, uh, telling tales.org is the website. If you want to go find out about it, Heather, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you are one of those people who has tried to get Taylor Swift tickets, and apparently there's a lot of you, there is a better than average chance, in fact, a very, very, very good chance that you are not holding Taylor Swift tickets and are pretty sour about it right now. Because a lot of people are saying, wait, we went on, we went on right when we were supposed to go on, we got our, we tried to get our number, we tried to do whatever, nothing, nothing. I don't know anyone else who got one either. And making it worse now is people are going on the resale market and seeing Taylor Swift tickets selling for $30,000 in some case, 
$30,000 to go see Taylor Swift. You know, you can watch her on TV <laughs> for that much. Is there a better way to sell concert tickets or is this just reality? Let's bring in Eric Alper. He's a music publicist and he's a writer and he's a guy who's been involved in the music business forever. Eric, how are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I am. Hey, listen, I'm better than someone who's cranky because I didn't get Taylor Swift tickets. Um, Yeah, they just have to hold off a, a little bit of their anger because if they're mad now, I can only imagine how mad they're going to be once the general on sale happens and realize that there are going to be millions and millions of people from around the world that are going to try to get tickets all at the same time as well. Um, because you're not just competing with somebody from Toronto or Hamilton or Mississauga for these shows. You're going to be competing with people that are going to happily travel from the UK or Japan in some cases that I've heard for for travel distances. But this is the way that it is. And this huge demand for tickets it is the reason why artists are charging more and more for their tickets is because I, I've long said that artists have kind of undervalued themselves when it comes to the live show. And what we're seeing is a little bit of a correction in that well, and, and what you have here, and, and uh, see, I get that people really want tickets. Their daughters, probably mostly, but sons do, but their kids really want tickets and parents are thinking, oh, I got to do this. I got a you know, Christmas gift or yeah. whatever. There were apparently, and I don't even know if I believe this number, but apparently they say there were 31 million people who applied to get tickets. Now, assuming that each of those people is not buying a single, that's 62 million tickets. If they're only, if those people are only trying to get a pair each, that's 62 million tickets. They're selling 300,000 tickets. That's half, that's 5% of people would be able to get that. Of course, not everyone's going to be able to get them. Yeah. And now of course there's the reason why that those tickets are now selling for $30,000 on the secondary market. Um, and, and that general on sale hasn't even happened yet. And we, what we don't know is how many tickets were actually on sale in the first place so far with a verified fan sale or the Avion credit card company um, pre-sale. There could have been 20 pairs of tickets given out for the entire six show run. There could be 20,000. So um, I think people are, um, they're getting worried. Um, they're feeling like they need to do this for their kids. They need to do this to, you know, starve off any embarrassment of being, being the bad parent who never got tickets. Um, I, 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 I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. Um, originally, uh, I mean, not only is this going to be the music industry's first billion dollar tour. There's now talk that this could be the first $2 billion tour. Um, and this isn't with just adding dates to it. This is just the sheer amount of money that people are willing to spend directly going into Taylor Swift's pockets and secondary economies. The idea, I know that a lot of people have already expressed when you, when you talk about secondary markets and stuff, the people have already expressed their outrage that, you know, not everyone could get tickets and now look at the price of these. How is a secondary market different from every single store that buys something from a manufacturer, marks up the price and sells it to us? And we don't have an objection when we go to a store to do this. You will, if the price is there, if people are willing to pay for it, stores are going to charge you what they will charge you. This doesn't seem to me to be any different. I know that's not a, an answer people want to hear, but is that not exactly the same thing? 
there's so much hypocrisy when it comes to concerts. And, and and I absolutely totally agree with you. When somebody owns something and then decides to resell it, you can go as much as you want. That doesn't mean that these tickets are actually worth $30,000 each or a, or for a pair. They're just waiting for that one person that makes four or five or six million dollars and just trying to resell it to them. Right. Um, but, you know, people have to understand that, like, I, not everybody deserves Taylor Swift tickets I, it, and not everybody is going to get these tickets um, with the sheer amount of supply and demand that's out there. It's just a basic economy where these you know, Ticketmaster is nothing more than a nameless and a faceless website. So I, I, the the anger that people have towards it is kind of, it's it's useless. They don't care that you have been a longtime fan. They don't really care how many copies of Taylor Swift's Midnight that you bought in your collection. <laughs> what it tried to do is not necessarily find the fans, but what its job is, is to weed out the non humans and the computer bots and those people that whose credit cards are connected with these secondary sites all the time. And they do a really good job of it, considering how many people are clamoring to buy tickets. Um, and there are laws on the books in Ontario um, and every province has it in this country that you cannot sell a ticket for more than 150 percent higher than the ticket price. So don't blame Ticketmaster for this, you know, the high price of these tickets. Um, blame the court, blame the police, blame the nobody actually doing the law. It um, is, it's a really good system, though, when it works. Okay, I was going to say, is there a better way, though? I mean, I, I find it hard to imagine what the better way is. Uh, I can see a better way at times in certain circumstances, but when you're getting 31 million people applying What's the better way? It, it is it is a built-in, unless she's going to do concerts for the next seven months in Toronto, uh, it, it, it's guaranteed some people are going to be disappointed. There simply aren't enough tickets. So is there really a better way or is this the best? No, this is this is the best way. Because the other two options that I remember was that if you were a Grateful Dead fan, you had to mail in your cash and, or, your, or a check and you wait four months to see whether or not if you got tickets for the upcoming Grateful Dead tour. Um, and then you had to just go and whatever date they gave you, that was the date that you had to go. The other option is just, you know, just to wait outside like we used to in the 1980s and 90s um, in the cold and the bitter rain and all of the, the weather for days on end for Pink Floyd tickets or for Michael Jackson tickets. And this is what they did during Beatlemania back in 1960. So this is still the best way to do it. Um, the, the the problem is that now you're just competing with the rest of the world for tickets. But, um, you know, this is just what happens when you have a once-in-a-lifetime artist like Taylor Swift. She's just not a one-in-a-generation. There's never been a tour like this before with this much demand. And every day that passes that she doesn't reveal when the on-sale date is for the general public, the higher those prices are going to be on the secondary market because people just get really, really nervous. Yeah, I was thinking, I was we got to run. I was thinking about that. I thought, could, could anyone else duplicate this? And not alive, I don't think right now, if somehow you could revive George Harrison and John Lennon and the Beatles got back together, I think you would be in the same situation. Maybe... Maybe ABBA, although I think that that's even a real stretch on this one. I, I just don't know where else this could possibly happen. But uh, yeah, there will be some uh, some very disappointed people, unfortunately. But uh, 
hey, math doesn't work when 31 million people want two tickets each at least. Uh, Eric Alper, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.